Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's September 2022. In previous episodes of the podcast, we've talked about the existence of significant gaps between what we know to be effective to prevent infections or to optimally prescribe antibiotics and what actually happens in clinical practice. These gaps can lead to the occurrence of preventable healthcare-associated infections and to unnecessary use of antibiotics. While there are many contributors to these gaps, one of these is failure to induce the changes in healthcare worker behavior that are needed for successful implementation of the desired intervention or action. In this episode, I'm joined by the authors of two papers published in this month's issue of ITCHY that address this important topic. My guests today are Drs. Aurora Popvikas and Nasia Safdar from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Popvikas is an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases. Dr. Safdar is a professor of medicine, the associate dean of clinical trials, and the vice chair for VA research in the Department of Medicine. Also with us today is Dr. Joel Mumma, who is an assistant professor at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and the research director for Emory's Healthcare Human Factors Lab. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I really appreciate you spending time with us today to talk about your research. I suspect we've all seen that the introduction of evidence-based guidelines and policies in our healthcare facilities does not automatically lead to standardization and universal uptake of best practices. So I think our listeners will find your work to be particularly relevant to their efforts to optimize implementation of their infection prevention and control programs. And before we get into the specific details of your research, I want to talk about some of the concepts of human behavior and the determinants of human behavior and behavior change that underlie your studies. So, Nazia, can you tell us a little bit more about these concepts and why it's important to consider them when implementing new practices? Thank you for that question, David. You know, I think for so long we have neglected to recognize that infection prevention really is a socio-technical field. We focus a lot on the technical aspects, the competency of what we are supposed to know and what we should be doing, and not enough on the adaptation of that knowledge into practice. Now that I think we've come to this realization that the technical aspect is just one piece of it, and really 90% of your effort should be in getting people to do what the right thing is and making it easy for them, I feel we will make more momentum in our uh, efforts here for infection prevention. Great. And so, Aurora, you use something called the theoretical domains framework in your study. What is that, and and how does it contribute to our ability to study and change human behavior? Sure. So there are a lot of behavior models or behavior change models and theories that attempt to explain why people behave in a certain way. So the theoretical domains framework is a synthesis of constructs from many behavior change theories that we organized according to the model by Susan Michi called COMB model. C stands for capability, which includes factors such as somebody's knowledge, skills, memory, attention, decision-making processes, the way they regulate behavior, all of which influence how they act. So that was C. O stands for opportunity, which looks at factors such as 
social influence, for example, somebody's peers or somebody's supervisor that might influence how they act. Also looks at environmental context and resources in which one practices, all of which influence their behavior at work. And lastly, motivation, which encompasses factors such as somebody's professional role, their belief about capabilities, their belief about consequences of a particular action, how optimistic or skeptical they are towards a particular recommendation, their intrinsic motivation and goals, and their emotions in response to a suggested change. Thank you. I think another thing that I'd like to talk about a little bit more is that in both studies, you investigated healthcare workers' mental models of infection prevention-related tasks and interventions. So, Joel, can you tell us what this term mental models means and how we can use that in our work? Sure. Thanks for the question. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So I should preface this by saying there are different perspectives on mental models, but the perspective we took in our paper is a fairly common one. So when we talk about mental models, what we're talking about is is our knowledge or our beliefs and perceptions about how something works. So just as a generic example, people who drive cars develop a mental model of cars. And if you ask them about that mental model, they'll tell you about the different parts in the car, the gas tank, the engine, but how those different parts work with one another. What's important is that people can have different mental models of the same thing. So if you take someone who just got their driver's license, for example, and compare them to a mechanic, the mechanic has a much more sophisticated mental model of cars. They can break it down mentally into different parts. They understand, importantly, how all of those parts work with one another. And this is something that comes to bear when they're trying to diagnose a problem with the car and thinking about how am I going to fix it? So I think some important takeaways about mental models is that our knowledge about how something works doesn't just reflect the parts that's involved in it, but one important detail here is that our mental models reflect how those parts are connected or relate to one another. And that means that mental models have a a structure and that structure we use to understand events that happen, why they happen, to predict events. So if I do X, Y is going to happen, given my mental model. And it also helps us plan what we're going to do accordingly. And if I understand correctly, these are things that in many cases are happening sort of subconsciously as we're doing them. We're not really consciously thinking about them. So we might not really even be aware of why we're doing what we're doing. It's just based on our previous experiences and what we understand to be true, maybe influencing how we are conducting ourselves or our our behaviors. Yeah, that's right. We don't always have access, you could say, to our mental models, and we're not always able to explain them. But as I'll talk about a little bit later in my study or our study, we have techniques where we can extract mental models from people without asking them to really have to talk about them in in any particular way. And so then how does understanding those mental models help us to be more successful in our efforts to implement evidence-based infection prevention practices? What do we do with that information once we get it. Yeah. So I think, you know, we need to meet healthcare workers where they are in terms of how they they think about infection prevention and how it relates to their work. I think a lot of attention in terms of the determinants of behavior have been focused on things like motivation, how people feel towards IPC practices. So just as an example of how understanding mental models, that is how people think about their work, is relevant to, to their practice and how we can affect it. 
So in our study, we were looking at how healthcare workers think about patient care tasks, how they organize them mentally. And what's important about that is that healthcare workers often go into a patient room and they have multiple tasks they have to perform for their patient. So from an infection prevention and control perspective, that means they need to do things like think about what sequence do I want to do my tasks in so that I, I minimize cross-transmission. So people describe that in terms of I try to work from clean to dirty. But they also have to do things like recognize when they're moving from a dirty task to a clean task, because that's a moment for something like hand hygiene or changing your gloves, performing hand hygiene. So we need to understand how healthcare workers in our, our study are thinking about their tasks, because how they're thinking about how these tasks are related to one another has implications for their behavior, how they sequence their tasks, how they recognize transitions from dirty to clean tasks and, and practice IPC appropriately. Great. Thanks. And I, I think all of that really helped to set the stage now for more detailed discussion of your research studies. So Aurora and Nazi, let's first talk about your study. What were the objectives that you were trying to accomplish? Sure. So in our study, we wanted to understand how surgeons think about surgical site infection prevention, primarily whether they view surgical site infection or SSI prevention or the occurrence of SSI as something inevitable despite all our efforts, or whether they primarily view SSI as a completely preventable event or perhaps a combination of the two. We also looked at factors that might influence adherence or compliance with the surgical site infection prevention bundle, which often is very complicated and has lots of infection control elements that are perhaps difficult to remember and execute in totality. Great. And if I read it correctly, you were looking not only for barriers to adherence, but also facilitators of adherence to these evidence-based practices, which I think was important because you weren't just trying to find out why people weren't adherent, but also why they were adherent, which might help us figure out what, how we can more successfully implement other strategies as well. Is that an accurate way to interpret what you were trying to do? Right. We always want to understand the factors that help us promote an intervention that we think is very effective. And uh, that is a correct interpretation. Great. So how did you go about trying to achieve those objectives that you outlined for us? So we performed a descriptive qualitative study with interviewing surgeons at our tertiary care hospital from all surgical departments. And we analyzed the data and designed our interview guides based on the behavioral change theory, the theoretical domain framework that I referred to before. But at this point, I'm going to let Dr. Safdar talk more about the qualitative research aspect and its importance in infection control in general. Thanks, Aurora. I think one of the things, you know, that we wanted to avoid in this study and, of course, in all of our infection prevention work is making assumptions when there isn't any data to support those assumptions. So, for instance, we know that we have to make momentum and infection prevention for SSI, but as to what those barriers are that are getting in our way, there are some that we have an idea about and others that we don't know what we don't know. So the idea of doing this type of research was to really hear from people at the core of SSI prevention 
what they believed was getting in their way and what they believed was supporting them in this shared mission of SSI prevention. So the mixed methods and the qualitative methods that were used here were, uh, I believe, very uh, helpful in that regard. So what did you find? Yeah, so of the 10 surgeons that we interviewed, which spanned through uh, several departments and the majority had been in practice for an average of 14, 15 years, we found that three of the surgeons viewed SSI as primarily inevitable. Four viewed SSI as primarily preventable. And the three remainder surgeons thought SSI is mostly preventable, but sometimes inevitable. And so in terms of explanation as to why SSI was viewed as inevitable, the main theory was that some patients' preoperative SSI risk is so high and so unmodifiable that uh, they will end up with an SSI, especially if they undergo emergent procedures or even during elective surgeries, because there's just not much we can do. Another explanation offered was sort of a puzzle. Why do we have SSIs when our compliance with the bundle is excellent? And so this means that there must be other causes of SSI or other factors that relate to SSI that we don't understand and therefore we can't prevent. Now, we knew at the time of this study that, in fact, the institutional compliance with the bundle was fairly low. Only about 30% of the patients consistently received all 13 elements of our bundle. So it was interesting to see that the perception among surgeons was that, in fact, our compliance was excellent. Now, in terms of explanations as to why SSI was viewed as being preventable, the majority of surgeons believed that the bundle is, in fact, an evidence-based intervention that is really good and reasonable to be adopted. And they operated under the assumption that it's always good to improve clinical practice and aim for the ideal of eliminating SSI. So they did think that a zero rate of SSI is at least theoretically possible. In terms of determinants of adherence or compliance with the bundle, we found several themes. First, most surgeons asserted that if they are convinced that the intervention proposed has really strong evidence-based data, then they are more likely to adopt it into clinical practice. They did mention that surgeons and their specialists are much more likely to respond to standards set for clinical practice by their own surgical leaders or their division chairs, their department heads, as opposed to other quality metrics or adherence targets that are set by outside forces, say, for example, the infection control department. And related to this theme, because surgeons value autonomy very highly, they would prefer to be involved at the stage of policy design related to matters that are pertinent to their specialty, such as, say, SSI prevention. And they did mention that they're often skeptical of recommendations or changes that originate outside of their specialty. And lastly, in terms of looking at our practice at the time, 
of this study of benchmarking performance against peer institutions or against national average rates and whether this is a good motivator for improving performance. Surgeons had mixed views. Some questioned the accuracy of data that's generated from other institutions. Some doubted that the data was adequately risk stratified. And some perceived this type of uh, benchmarking and feedback useful only if it's not related or correlated with punitive measures. However, the majority, actually all 10 of the surgeons interviewed, mentioned as the primary biggest motivator for improvement, their own desire to excel in their practice and their concern for patients' well-being. And these were considered much stronger motivators than, say, financial rewards or incentives. And so how did you, or perhaps how will you, use those findings to advance your efforts to prevent surgical side infections? What were the takeaways that you found actionable from that? Yeah, so we really did take these findings to heart and changed our approach to SSI prevention. So we engaged surgeons to champion the SSI prevention effort going forward by appealing to their intrinsic motivators. And we focused compliance efforts to the parts of the infection control bundle that was perceived as having the strongest uh, evidence base from the literature. And we also changed the way we delivered performance feedback by doing this through the uh, surgical leaders that people trusted the most, as opposed to directly delivering it from our department. So, Joel, let's talk about your work. So what questions were you trying to answer with your colleagues in your research? So in our study, we assessed the mental models of of healthcare workers and different populations. So we looked at infection preventionists and nurses who came from the emergency room or the emergency department, intensive care units, and medical surgical floors. And the kind of mental models we were interested in comparing between these groups were those that they have of patient care tasks for a patient that only requires standard precautions. So they're not on any kind of isolation precaution. And while we walked into this without any specific hypothesis, we thought these were good populations to study and compare because it's it's reasonable to expect that some differences might emerge. So for example, IPs and RNs might organize tasks along different dimensions mentally, different characteristics of tasks because IPs are more formally trained in IPC, whereas RNs or nurses might consider dimensions that more so reflect the practicalities of performing tasks, things like how much contact, physical contact is involved in the task, whereas IPs might perceive tasks more in terms of the theoretical risk and things like that. So I'll admit that I wasn't familiar with some of the methods that you used in your study until I read it. So perhaps you can walk us through what you did to try to get that information. Sure. So the way that we studied people's mental models from each of these different populations. So we started with creating a list of 25 different patient care tasks. And so these things ranged from changing a central line dressing, inserting a Foley catheter, cleaning up a body fluid spill on the floor, to things like repositioning a patient in bed, auscultating a patient. And the method we followed was to have each participant think about these tasks from an infection prevention perspective, 
and they considered two tasks at a time. So they were asked, take an infection prevention perspective for this patient who's on standard precautions and rate how similar changing a central line dressing is to inserting a Foley catheter. Then they would do another pair of tasks. So think about how similar from an infection prevention perspective, changing a central line dressing is to repositioning a patient in bed. And so the idea is that when participants were doing this, they were comparing these tasks to one another. They were comparing them in terms of some characteristics or dimensions that the task have. So in those examples I gave earlier, someone might very well be thinking purely in terms of what's the infection risk to the patient in the task. So from that perspective, changing a central line dressing and inserting a Foley catheter are pretty similar. But from that same perspective, changing a central line dressing and repositioning a patient in bed, you might say those are pretty dissimilar. Those pose very different risks to the patient. So the idea, though, is that these similarity ratings that they gave us reflect their thought process. It's just a matter of extracting the information in there. And so to that end, we use a statistical technique that's called multidimensional scaling, MDS. And what MDS is, it's just an algorithm that can take those similarity ratings from people and it can uncover the characteristics of the task or the dimensions of these tasks that the healthcare workers were thinking about when they were comparing. Another interesting thing about this algorithm is that it can also tell you how much weight or importance each individual person places on a dimension. So for example, groups can vary in terms of how important the risk to the patient is versus how important the dirtiness or risk of bodily fluid exposures is to them in the task. So our algorithm allows for that kind of variability. So the last thing I'll say about our technique is that MDS is just math. It's an algorithm. It knows nothing about infection prevention and control. So the dimensions it gives us have to be interpreted by humans. So the way we interpreted these dimensions is through another statistical technique. So we gathered a list of different characteristics that we thought healthcare workers might've been considering. So what's the infection risk to the patient? What's the amount of patient contact in the task? How dirty is this task? And we asked a separate group of nurses to rate each of those tasks, those 25 tasks, in terms of those characteristics. So just for example, consider the task of changing a, a dressing on a central line. What's the infection risk to the patient on a scale of low to high? How dirty is this task from low to high? And so on and so forth. What we then do is we correlate those ratings with the dimensions that MDS identified. And so if we find that a characteristic like infection risk or dirtiness is really strongly correlated with the dimension, then we interpret the dimension accordingly. We say that that's what that dimension is actually capturing or reflecting. Okay, great. That was really helpful. And so what did you find after doing all of this? So as I said, we looked at different populations, infection preventionists and nurses from the ED, ICU, and med surge floors. And what we found was a surprising amount of consistency in terms of how they're organizing these patient care tasks in their, in their minds from an infection prevention perspective. So we found that each population was thinking about or perceiving these tasks in terms of three common dimensions or characteristics. Uh, so the most prominent characteristic in healthcare workers' minds was the perceived infection risk to the patient in a task. And again, they're thinking about this in a low to high sense. So examples of tasks that healthcare workers think of as posing a high infection risk to patients are things 
like changing a central line, dressing, drawing blood from the central line, putting in a Foley catheter, changing an, uh, a stage four pressure ulcer dressing. The tasks that they think are very low in risk to the patient are things like auscultating them, bathing them, uh, performing oral care. The second dimension or characteristic that healthcare workers were thinking about, but was less prominent in their minds, was how dirty they thought the task was and how great the risk of bodily fluid exposure was to them during the task. And again, they're thinking about dirtiness and body fluid exposure in this low to high sense. So just examples of tasks on that dimension are on the high end, things like emptying a body fluid from a drain, performing peri care, getting a wound specimen are all very high in dirtiness, high in risk of bodily fluid exposures. On the low end of that are things like administering an IM or SQ medicine, putting in an NG tube. So healthcare workers tend to think of those as being very low in dirtiness. I'm not likely to get uh, bodily fluids on me when I'm doing this. And the last dimension or characteristic that was least prominent in their minds reflects the function of the task or the purpose of the task from an infection prevention and control perspective. So what I mean by that is healthcare workers are thinking, why am I doing this task? Am I doing this task more so to try to prevent an infection in my patient? Or am I doing this task more so to try to control or diagnose an infection? There's something there and I'm trying to figure out what's going on with my patient. So tasks that are more about in preventing an infection are things like changing dressings on a central line, a PIV, cleaning the patient through pericare, performing oral care. Tasks that are more about controlling infections, more relevant to that, are collecting specimens. So be it wound, NP, urine specimen, stool specimen, or getting blood samples, things like that. So to summarize, despite the fact that we, we looked at these different populations, we found that there was some pretty remarkable consistency in how they're organizing these tasks from an infection prevention perspective. So maybe I'll ask you a question similar to the one I asked Aurora and Nasia. How do you think we can, or maybe you already have, use this type of information in our efforts to improve infection prevention practices in hospitals? How does this contribute to that? Yeah, so I think I, I have two points here. The first is that I think this work points to new approaches to training healthcare workers and assessing their knowledge of IPC. So again, we found primarily that healthcare workers think in terms of what's the infection risk to my patient in this task, but simultaneously, how dirty is this task? What's the risk of me being exposed to bodily fluids? But we didn't assess the accuracy of those beliefs. So for example, if we could create a gold standard ranking or categorization of tasks in terms of these are low infection risk, moderate, high, or these are low likelihood of bodily fluid exposure, moderate to high, we could actually compare the accuracy of healthcare workers' mental models to this gold standard, or in other words, assess how well calibrated their perception of risk is. So that's one implication. I think another interesting implication for how this might change our infection prevention strategies is that I think our findings might suggest that we need to change our vocabulary for how we talk about and describe patient care tasks from the IPC perspective. So what I mean by that is healthcare workers often talk about tasks as being either this is a dirty task or this is a clean task. But what we found is that healthcare workers think of certain tasks like changing the dressing on a stage four pressure ulcer as being both dirty and clean in the sense that an open but uninfected wound poses an infection risk, a high infection risk to the patient. 
But the drainage, the pus in that wound may have bacteria that could pose a risk to the healthcare worker. What's interesting is I've heard healthcare workers talk about wound care as being either a dirty task or a clean task. And my concern is that this vocabulary, this vernacular might force healthcare workers to place wound care and wound-related tasks in one bucket or the other, even though they recognize that wound care has both clean and dirty aspects to it. And what I think the consequence of that might be is if you treat it as, okay, this is a clean task or this is a dirty task, that might be misleading and lead healthcare workers to neglecting IPC practices that protect them or their patients, depending on how they're categorizing this task. So I think there needs to be a term or an idea of task can be clean, task can be dirty, but some tasks can have both aspects to them. Okay, so now maybe we can talk a little bit more broadly about how these two studies kind of complement each other and what we've learned from them. So I know you each studied fairly specific topics in fairly specific populations, but do you think the findings are specific to those groups and your settings, or are they more broadly relevant? I guess I'm wondering if we all need to conduct the same study and reconfirm that the same is true in our settings, or if the findings from your studies are likely to be at least somewhat generalizable to other sites or even other settings and, and populations. I mean, the way that I would think about it is I think that there are some factors that are probably likely to be generalizable that are cross-cutting. Certainly, I think the methods and the approaches used could be widely generalizable for other types of populations and other types of questions. But even some of the barriers and facilitators we found, you know, were not specific to our institution. But there are probably just as many factors that are very local context dependent that people will have to determine for themselves because those are the very things that impede implementation of a peer-reviewed publication into your context. You know, you just either don't have the buy-in or there's some barrier that you didn't think about and didn't address preemptively. So I guess the answer to your question from my perspective would be you know, a little bit of both. Yeah. And I'll say for our work, one of the, the major limitations is that we focused on standard precautions. And so a patient requiring only standard precautions. So healthcare workers might very well have a different mental model if that patient were to be on isolation precautions for something. But that's actually a question we're actively studying in our lab. And the results so far suggest that even in patients who are on precautions for C. diff, that we're seeing very similar approaches to organizing these, these tasks in, the, in their mental models. And for our perspective, in terms of the take-home message for me after this study was that if we understand people's mental models when they come into infection prevention, we are more likely to speak the same language when we engage in the infection control strategies and interventions that we want to propose. And rather than operate in silos, we're better equipped to have meaningful dialogue and build really successful team collaborations that are much more likely to change behavior in the long run. I think that was really helpful. And I really want to go back and highlight, I think, something that Nazi said I think is really important that, well, I think we can all learn from studies that other people do. It really is important to, to consider our local context if we really want to optimally implement these important processes. So thanks for that. And I guess at this point, we're coming towards the end, and we always end the podcast by asking each participant to give listeners an action item that they can really take away from the podcast and do something with. 
So maybe today I'll ask, how can we use the findings of your study or perhaps the methods that you used in your research in our routine infection prevention and implementation work? So maybe Aurora, I'll start with you. Yeah, so I think I started alluding to this already, but for me, I think the more we understand our coworkers and colleagues' perspectives, the more likely we are to come up with solutions that are more likely to be adopted into clinical practice with high adherence. And then if we achieve success, if we start seeing that we are able to reduce infections, for example. The beautiful thing about mental models is that they're not static. People constantly change their worldviews depending on new observations and new experiences. So it's possible to move from being a total skeptic about reducing SSI to actually becoming a believer or an optimist. Once you see that graph really going down, perhaps SSI becomes really primarily preventable and not just inevitable. How about you, Nasia? I couldn't agree more. I think that is exactly the purpose of this is to just understand each other's perspectives, don't make assumptions or stereotypes about what you think the, you know, the other party, so to speak, is thinking or behaving and recognize that we need to invest as much of our energy into the adaptive and social aspects of infection prevention as we currently do on the guideline preparation and the scientific aspect of it. Last but not least, Joe. Yeah, I agree. These are good points that mental models are are not static, they're changeable. And I think an important question we should be asking each other more is, you know, are we aligned in our thinking? And to give something concrete that you can do as part of training, there are quick and easy techniques to get at how people are are thinking about things like patient care tasks. So we just finished a follow-up study where we had healthcare workers think about 20 patient care tasks, but instead of rating them, they grouped them. Each task was written on a card and they labeled those cards according to what's the theme there. So this technique could be, and they did this in about five minutes, so it doesn't take very much time at all. But this technique we found is very useful as part of a training program or as a training activity for sparking discussion about how people might be thinking about tasks differently from an infection perspective. But if there's an an expert, a consensus, you can also compare how people are are grouping these things to that as well to to get at where we might be misaligned in our thinking about what implications these, these tasks have for infection prevention and control. Great. I think that you've all raised some really good points. I think it really, the, to summarize what I've heard, it's really not making assumptions about what other people are thinking and what they know and understand and, and using that information, trying to tease that information out and understand what they're thinking so that we can work together to identify strategies that really help to optimize the use of these evidence-based strategies and their implementation. So, I really want to thank each of you again once more for joining me today to talk about your research and for helping us understand human behavior and how understanding healthcare workers' mental models and working with those models may allow us to more effectively implement infection prevention practices. I also want to thank our producer, Lindsay McMurray. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast.